Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. At Jew in the City, our mission is, well, actually, we've expanded our mission recently um, because of our work at Project Makom, where we help um, disenfranchised or ex-Hasidic and Litvish people find a, a better fitting and positive uh, connection to uh, observant Judaism. We've actually expanded our mission now to not just be about breaking down stereotypes about Orthodox Jews because what we discovered was that there are plenty of Orthodox Jews that have misinformed um, understandings of Orthodoxy and Judaism, which is what caused for many of these disenfranchised people to have such a negative um, view and relationship to Yiddishkeit. Uh, so our, our new mission statement that we are trying to hammer down is something like making positive and meaningful orthodoxy known and acceptable to all Jews, or something like that. We're, we're still working through it. Um, but part of uh, positive and meaningful orthodoxy is not just seeing examples of people that we want to be like and look up to that balance, you know, uh, interesting careers with, uh, you know, commitment to Hashem and Torah and mitzvot, and it's not just people that, you know, do great acts of kindness that we want to live up to. Part of making Orthodox Judaism um, meaningful and positive is being okay with, um, with the Torah. There are difficulties in the Torah, in Jewish law, uh, things that don't really jive so well with you know, modern thinking, modern mores. Um, and on one hand, we have to be, um, you know, authentic and we can't make any uh, changes outside of our Masorah or our halachic process. On the other hand, um, built into our halachic process and Masorah are tools to, um, I don't know, maybe our guest today will be able to better explain how exactly we do this, but... Um, sort of take new information, new, um, you know, situations of the times um, to be able to kind of fit Judaism into where the world is today. Um, in some ways, it seems very uh, controversial um, because I grew up um, conservative. And although um, the idea, I think, originally in the conservative movement was to stay sort of um, authentic and, and close to the halachic process, where things went in practice. Um, I mean, we can look at the Pew reports and see that um, things did not turn out, I think, as the, the founders had intended. Um, but built into the halakhic process, I think when uh, acted upon correctly, um, is a way to maintain Masora. And perhaps maybe one could argue to, I guess, update or accommodate sort of with modern times it might actually be more authentic Judaism than staying too stagnant. So I think this is the conversation I'm going to be having with our guest today over a couple issues that um, are definitely challenging in the Torah. Um, one is women not being able to be witnesses, and the other is Yerusha, is inheritance, women not having the same role in the Torah in, in, in order to be able to inherit. Um, and both answers we're going to hear about are actually surprising. They are more modern or uh, sort of gender equal than we might expect is possible in orthodoxy. But frankly, I'm thrilled to hear um, what is happening nowadays, and I think more people should know about it, but also to understand sort of the careful halachic process um, of how um, these two things are happening now. So joining us today to explain um, what maybe I have not explained so well so far is Professor Michael Avi Helfan. 
He's an expert on religious law and religious liberty. He's a frequent author and lecturer. His work considers how U.S. law treats religious law, custom, and practice. He's currently an associate professor at Pepperdine University School of Law and a co-director of the Glazer Institute of Jewish Studies. His articles have appeared in numerous law journals, including the Yale Law Journal and New York University Law Review, as well as various general audience publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and The Forward. He received his J.D., from Yale Law School's PhD in political science from Yale University. In addition to his academic work, Professor Halfand is an executive board member of the Bethden of America, where he serves as a consultant on the enforceability of rabbinical arbitration agreements and awards in the U.S. courts. Avi, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here with you. So as I was trying to do my intro, I was wondering, is he cringing? Is this making any sense? But I, I hope I explained it. You know, what we'd like for you to do today when sort of discussing these issues of um, witnesses um, and, um, you know, inheritance, um, a little bit of, you know, sort of, I guess, the details halakhically, but enough for, for the lay people to understand. Um, so in, you know, the, the slot that we have <laughs> assigned uh, for, for our show today. So um, what what do you think is an easier thing to, to sort of understand? Because maybe like a year ago, um, one of my rebellion mentioned something about how women are witnesses in today's, you know, rabbinic courts. And I was like, really, that's fascinating. I never heard anything about this. So maybe actually, actually I'm more curious about that. So can we start there? Like, when did this happen? And how did this happen? And could you walk us through what does the Torah say, and how how are women acting as witnesses now? So maybe I'll uh, kind of given your um, comments with which certainly did not make me cringe, but I think captured like a uh, general um, ambivalence or challenge of um, let's call it uh, modern Judaism um, ways in which that you know we try to take a Jewish legal system and make it work. Um, and for for the uh, for the Jewish community, law is like interesting in that way, in that it's it's not really just theoretical. Law is about about making things work, making things being just in the here and now. And I think it's its practical edge that sometimes is why it's like an interesting way to think about some of the kind of tensions between what we think of as um, standard traditional halachic um, Jewish law and kind of the uh, legal structures that we have, that we live with, that we kind of take for granted. Uh, I know you mentioned the women as witnesses thing. The women as witnesses thing is something I kind of happened upon by accident. Um, I was, I got a call one day from a uh, a lawyer, and I get, the calls I get from lawyers are usually strange. There, something weird has gone wrong if you're calling me. I spend my life dealing with like how Jewish law and American law work together, sometimes better, sometimes worse. So um, I got a call, and this guy says to me, what happens if a Beitin refuse to accept a woman's testimony, and then they issue a Psach Din? Now, here's what he had in mind. Normally, these days, when a Beitin issues a Psach Din, what they've done is both parties have agreed to let the Beitin do that. American law calls it arbitration. We both sign up. We sign an agreement. We authorize some sort of neutral third party to resolve a dispute, and they do so. And American law, what it will do is it will take the decision of those arbitrators, and it will enforce the decision. It will give it the force of a judgment. It will be like, just like a judge said it. And that means that you can levy bank accounts and garnish wages, all the things that lawyers like to do. So um, this guy calls me up, and he says, well, what happens? And what he had in mind was the fact that 
um, for an award, for a decision of a Beitin or anybody else that's functioning as an arbitrator to be enforceable, what he had in mind was you have to follow certain kinds of procedures. And one of them is you can't just discount evidence. You can't say to people, there's certain evidence that's relevant to the dis- dispute, and I'm not going to let you bring it. And so he says to me, what happens? Now, here's the interesting thing. turns out it didn't happen. His client was making stuff up. But it was an interesting question. I was kind of like, huh, you know, here's like you have like a real 21st century tension between what I thought was the halachic rule, women can't testify when it comes to commercial matters, and American law, which says if you want your decision to be enforceable, you have to accept all evidence and testimony. So I did what lawyers do. I started poking around um, on one of these uh, legal search engines, and it turns out there are no cases where this has ever come up, which to me was mind-boggling. There are thousands of baked-in-related cases. I deal with them a lot. And in this area, you would have thought this should have come up like a million times. And I could not figure out for the life of me why I wasn't finding any cases. And so I started poking around in Jewish law. And when you go through kind of the halachic, let's call it what it is, evolution on the topic, um, over a significant period of time, what you see is is that over time, Chazal came up with exceptions to the rule that women can't testify. And by the time you get to, you know, 23 Judaism, the exceptions are so broad and so significant that it really just doesn't come up when it comes to commercial cases in court. That's kind of the short story and why I cared about it. Um, and uh, maybe I'll say a little bit about um, how it happened. Allison, feel free to interrupt me when you uh, get a law professor going well, talking. Yeah, 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 sometimes so he just me. doesn't well, yeah, stop. I, I want to dig in a little bit, too. So, like, can you give us an idea? When did Chazal start? making exceptions for when women couldn't testify, meaning like they started making it broad that she can testify unless X, Y, or Z weird thing happens. Is, is that what it was? Like women automatically can testify unless X, Y, or Z? So the, the exceptions come kind of slow, um, and I'd say they start with the Rishonim. So maybe we're talking like the one piece of it is starts in a certain way from the Gemara, 4th century, maybe then later, let's call it uh, elucidation of that, let's call it 12th to 15th century. So the first kind of exception you get is there's this um, curious bit of Gemara in Masechah Kiddushin where the Gemara starts talking about um, how it, uh, what happens when... Um, uh, a child is born. What they used to have, they used to have like um, what's called Talmudic maternity wards, where you'd have a midwife, a bunch of moms um, who have just given birth, and then a bunch of kids in a maternity ward. And here is the problem: they didn't have those cool armbands that we have now, so you can match up kid with parent, and you can imagine that being scary. So the person who was in charge of figuring out who go, which which mom goes with which child, it was the midwife. And the Gemara, the, the, um, Gemara actually says that you can believe the midwife to say, this kid goes with this mom. And that's weird, mm-hmm. because even though we know the rule normally is, when you look back at like the original statement of the rule in the Gemara, women can't testify. Here, a woman is testifying on something that has commercial implications. And the Rishonim actually start from here. They create this fun little mm-hmm. rule that says, in instances where you have somebody who's like involved and engaged in a particular matter, even if they're not a valid witness, even if they're women, they're allowed to testify. And like the Rishonim give like lots of examples of what this might include. Here's my personal favorite one. My personal favorite one is you can believe a woman to say that clothing that belonged to your deceased wife, I can testify that that clothing was hers because I know it was hers and somebody else, if they say it belonged to somebody else, I, women can testify to say 
that that uh, clothing belonged to a particular woman. Now, the reason why a woman is believed to do that is because the Trimotization says men don't pay attention to women's clothing. I quote this uh, frequently in my household when my wife criticizes me um, that I didn't know she was not paying wearing attention to her dress. clothing. And uh, I often say, um, it appears that you know, for hundreds of years, Jewish men have not been paying attention to their Jewish women's clothing, and she's unimpressed with this um, bit of Talmudic deflection. But uh, this is an Hilarious. example that where the Rishonim say women are more engaged, women are pay more attention, they can testify. That's the real, in many ways, the first exception that you get. It actually comes from the Gemara and is kind of elucidated by the Rishonim. Um, but it gets bigger. It gets bigger than that. So then you have, like, uh, I'd say the second big piece of the puzzle is um, a comment of um, uh, the uh, of Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam actually broadens the exception quite a bit, and he actually enacts a takana, I would say legislates, that in any circumstance where a um, you have something instantaneous happens, he talks about people fighting in a shul, and one person punches the other, and the only, it, it happens all of a sudden, you don't have time to say, would you mind not punching for a second, I'd like to bring some kosher witnesses. Um, he says that whoever you have in one of these instantaneous moments where you can't bring anybody else, they can testify. Man, woman, doesn't hmm. matter. Um, the rules that hmm. we have, this is kind of an exception to the rule. And this is actually like a bigger deal. This applies in a lot more cases. One of the areas that these kinds of chuvot come up quite a lot the fact patterns that they deal with. Evidently, there are a lot of fights in women's sections uh, hmm. throughout the century. So you have lots of chivot that say, like, that seat's mine, no, that seat's mine. And when you stop to think about it, you begin to realize, and this is what I meant when I said, like, law deals with practical problems. It's not, it's not theory. Mm -hmm. So people are like, well, you know, whose seat is it? And here is the problem. Once you think about the rule of no women testifying, so you mm -hmm. suddenly realize, like, a women's section is a dangerous place to be. Hmm. I mean, <laughs> who, who can testify? I hear that. Imagine so, you have a women's section where, like, it's completely closed off. I can steal. Like, like what can I do there? There's nobody to testify right. of anything that happens. And you can see in the Chuvot, Chazal, like, trying to sort this through. Like, it can't be based on right. our spaces in shul and our halachic rules that we're going to create a space that's like, um, oh, what's that awful movie? the purge, where like one day a year, like everyone can cre do whatever violence they want. So we would have right. created like a space where anybody can do what they want because nobody could ever testify about malfeasance. And Chazal, so, for, that, for them, it, it's acceptable. So how about, um, I mean, when you're saying something happening in real time, um, and these are the only people that are around, what comes to mind now is, God forbid, like assault, sexual assault, you know, that sort of a thing. Can we apply that to... A situation where it's some sort of, you know, not in a Ezra's Nashim, but just anywhere where any type of assault may occur and only women are there to see it? Yeah. So, I, I, you know, one of the things I often talk about in this context is, an, in, uh, you know, a really um, incredible tshuva um, from uh, Rav Yitzhak Halevi Herzog, first chief rabbi of Israel. So he gets the following case, I guess it would have been in the 40s. Um, he gets the following case. Woman claims she's abused by her husband, um, and she wins in the kind of lower basin in Israel. She gets alimony because there's cause for the divorce, and because, and because of his conduct, they award her a whole bunch of money. He appeals the decision um, 
to Rav Herzog, and uh, he says they can't do that. Her only witnesses um, were women, and since her only mm-hmm. witnesses were women, she has no valid testimony, and so there's nothing she can do. Mm-hmm. And Rav Herzog responds like just in the way you predicted. So he says a couple of things. He says, first of all, this is something that a woman is more likely to know than a man. It's kind of like uh, women's clothing. A woman is more likely to share information about abuse with another mm-hmm. woman, tell them the, her, the, the story, explain what happened, all these things. It's something that a woman is more likely to notice of another woman. And as a result, um, even that first exception would capture this kind of case. And then he says, and of course you have the second one, the instantaneous conduct. Um, mm. This is the only person who saw it. Of course, a woman can testify in these matters. And he actually uses a third exception. I can say something about in a second. But um, yeah, that's exactly how he uses it. It's one of the ways in which you can see um, the halachic process in this in this particular area. Um, I often say, like uh, certain forms of injustice are not going to be tolerated, and um, uh, halacha evolved with respect to rules of evidence um, in order to um, account for those dynamics. So practically speaking, um, I'm saying, so this is going back now, you know, over a thousand years um, at the beginning, and now certainly up to modern day chuvas. Are women being brought to Bate Dinim to testify? Are we seeing this throughout the from world, only in the modern Orthodox world? Like, what are the practical implications of things happening today? Because I feel like I've heard even around abuse cases, oh, well, that nothing will ever happen there because, you know, it wasn't, um, it was only a woman that saw it, and so she can't give aidus, and so that guy's never going to get locked away. So is there a tension here that not everybody holds by this? Um, so my, like, uh, the reason I start with the story about the um, legal database is because if there are, so um, here we're talking about like these kinds of commercial cases where we've normally said women uh, can't testify. And if um, it were still being used in the United States to exclude women from testifying in these kinds of cases, um, we'd have a court case about it. Um, it's kind of the great equalizer in some way to like look at a legal database and see you know, what can you find there. Um, you find almost everything related to baked-in cases that may have come up, really just some of the most extraordinary and peculiar things, because there are thousands of cases out there. Um, the fact that nobody, you just find no cases, makes me pretty confident that this is not... Um, any particular brand or slice of the Orthodox community. And I know just from about some of my own baked-in interactions here and there that, um, yeah, um, as a general matter, what we'll say is that a, a Dian has the authority to accept um, any testimony that they think is uh, true and accurate. You know, the, the third exception that I didn't mention, which uh, uh, Rav golf also references, is this wonderful line by the Aruch HaSholchan, um, where he talks about kind of there's some lingering debate, evidently, over what to do in these circumstances. And um, so he, he describes kind of those who still have this view, um, something that actually you still find a little bit more in Sephardic postkin. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you can't have these kinds of invalid um, witnesses. And he, he ends by saying, it simply can't be the case. His line is, She'im iat ta'omer kein, yachrivu hasados v'ha'aginos v'ha'pardesim v'ein omer, 
Hashav. Uh, if uh, if you hold this way that you can't have these witnesses, uh, it's kind of flowery language. The towers, gardens, and orchards will be burned down. There will be nobody to protect them. This kind of like visceral um, recognition that we ultimately need a legal system where the people who are adjudicating claims, you know, claims over justice over. Uh, people who have had uh, have suffered legal wrongs and need some sort of halachic remedy. It's got to be the case that the people who are doing that kind of judging have the authority to look out into the world, see what they think is true and accurate, and incorporate that into um, a decision that applies God's law. Um, and you, you know, Rav Herzog, when he kind of ends his tshuva, he ends with that, which I've always thought is very powerful. That. You know, all the other exceptions, exception one, in cases where I understand this is something that a particular person would be more engaged in, or, or exception two, you have some sort of instantaneous conduct where you couldn't, you couldn't bring, uh, you, you couldn't bring anybody else to be the witness. It just happened all of a sudden, and that's who you've got. But exception three is really um, a statement about justice. Um, that law has practical implications. That people, people can be benefit and hurt. Um, uh, by the types of claims that come up in the context of a Beitin, and that we entrust, given that they have qualifications that they need to abide by and adhere to, um, that we, we we need to create Beitin institutions that have the ability to implement justice to make sure um, that the vulnerable ultimately um, have their legal wrongs remedied. So um, I'm going to challenge you a little bit, just because I'm trying to understand um, sort of the limit of how Meaning, where, at what point does do things go sort of beyond the pale? Meaning, couldn't we argue that um, it's unjust for a Kohen not be to not be able to get married because he can't find a non-divorced woman? Couldn't we argue that it's unjust for the Aguna to you know not be able to remarry because her low-life husband won't give the get? Um, how is it that um, in matters of bate dinim? Um, we can find ways of justice um, just because Kazal say it's unjust. We have to do this. And then in other things that seem unjust, we're more stuck. Like what, what is the mechanism that frees one thing but keeps us um, tethered to something else? Is, is that clear? Oh, it's certainly, um, the question's certainly clear. <laughs> the answer, unfortunately, is I think far more obscure. Um, and in many ways, this mm-hmm. is like the, it's the million dollar question. I often try to remind people that law is inherently conservative. This isn't a Jewish law thing. This is just a law thing generally. And if you think the, of the amount of time it took the United States to get from um, the Civil Rights Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, to figure out that separate but equal was unconstitutional, I mean, it took the United States over 100, you know, around 100 years to sort that through. That's an extraordinary amount of time, and it's because, I use that as an example, because the thing that makes law useful as like part of the life of humans is that it is orderly and predictable that mm-hmm. people know what the rules are and they conform their conduct accordingly and therefore they know what the outcome will be that's law's purpose law's purpose is to tell people listen here's what you should do here's what you shouldn't do and if you if you follow the rules you're going to know what the outcomes are and and that's why law inherently at its very core hates change because mm-hmm. it ceases to serve its function 
when it changes too frequently because it doesn't provide an orderly and predictable system for people to engage in conduct. Now, mm-hmm. that, that's the background, I feel like, to all halachic conversations about change. Uh, change and mm-hmm. any form of law, and certainly once you've infused that with theological value, it's going to be um, resistant to change. Um, the story mm-hmm. I told you is a 1,000-year story. It, it's not like a quick story. And I don't mean to say by that that, like, all things change. Certainly not. I mean, you've identified things that have um, remained, like, really just part of the Orthodox Jewish experience. I mean, we still talk about Agunot being either the number one or number two biggest problem in the Orthodox Jewish community. And mm-hmm. it's not something upon which we've really done been able to do. Um, we haven't been able to change the fundamental halachic rule um, that mm-hmm. creates the problem. Part of it mm-hmm. is, you know, the context you're talking in. So when it comes to commercial matters, halacha has far more flexibility, meaning built into the system, concepts like hefker, beitin, hefker, and things like that, um, provide mm-hmm. the authority for beitin to do a lot more, even if it requires tinkering with some of the rules, because ultimately a beitin can say, you have money, it belongs to somebody else. When it comes to questions of marriage and divorce, it gets a lot more thorny. Um, both the halachic background mm-hmm. rules and the details um, are harder to deal are, are are harder to finesse in that way. Um, that being said, you know when you mentioned the aguna issue, so I spend a a decent chunk of time thinking about the halachic prenup, and I think that's mm-hmm. become, at least in the modern Orthodox community, very well accepted even yep. though in certain ways it's halachically transformative. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things baked in there that um, push the envelope a little bit. Um, right. And so maybe that's like nipping at the edges as opposed to, you know, what you're sensing, which is like a real core change here to how we do business as opposed to in other areas. Correct. No, I thank God there's a lot of progress in terms of the halachic prenup, um, it, but it's more like why doesn't the core change? We have about a minute left on this topic, and I think that I would love to do a second show to talk about Yerusha now with you because um, I think that requires um, even more time. Just in the last, I guess, minute now, do you have any idea? Is it that like I just don't know? Do you think most people know that women are giving testimony in Bate Dinim, or is this like a chiddush because you didn't know either? Like, why does no one know this? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And and you know, I'll I'll say the following. Certainly, when it comes to commercial matters like uh, business dealings, I think that I think certainly uh, let's speak to the modern Orthodox Jewish community, which I know better. Um, I feel like the modern Orthodox Jewish community has not given a ton of thought to how, like, its halachic obligations, the halachic process, its halachic institutions, and their commercial lives work together. I think we think of, like, we go to work, and, and we don't think a ton about, like, the actual halachic rules that govern um, commerce. It's just not a huge piece of how we talk. I, we think about, like, education in schools. Um, I never learned about Hoshin Mishpat growing up, elementary school, high school, anything like that. Um, and I think that's relatively common. And in our schools, we don't talk about Hoshin Mishpat. You think about the speakers who come in to give talks and things like that. It's usually not about Hoshin Mishpat. That's a quarter of the Shulchan Aruch. And we don't give a lot of thought to what are the values that animate um, our commercial obligations, our commercial halachic obligations. Um, and so it's not surprising to me. I think there's tons of stuff we don't know. 
um, because it's mm-hmm. not, you know, we think of we think of halacha in terms of davening, in terms of yom tovim, in terms of Shabbos, you know, archaim, the liturgy and practice and ritual and things like that. But, you know, to me, I think one of the bigger problems, is, you know, it's one of the things that the Best End of America, um, we started working on, started trying to build the curriculum to try to talk about if, if we're going to be whole Jews, by which I mean the entirety of our human existence is going to be about living out God's law um, in all spheres of our lives, then commerce shouldn't be kind of put off in a corner and say, no, that's just how we do business. Um, we need to do a better job of that. And so when you say you haven't heard of this, and I say I haven't heard of this, I think it's because it's not a big part of modern Orthodox education. And mm-hmm. I think the long-term question is, how do we change that? How do we make sure that the education that our kids get is about um, being that kind of full-throated modern Orthodox Jew um, in every facet of our lives so that uh, I think uh, next generation of Jews don't find so many things surprising? Hmm. Love it. I mean, we definitely have to think about future generations. As I look at the problems and what causes Chilei Hashem and people to leave nowadays, we are definitely thinking about prevention and better education. Um, this has really been fascinating, um, Avi, and I thank you for your time. My pleasure. A pleasure talking to you. And can you can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.